What's up, guys? Welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Snapshot Podcast, our first episode ever, where what we're going to do this year in 2024 is we're going to stop at the beginning of the week and think about all that we're going to read as we go along. So this is a very important week. Of course, it's the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 19. And I want you to think we are going to be reading thousands of years of history. Some of the most important and fundamental teachings of the Bible come here, and we want to get a survey of it before we start. Just like what you may do before a road trip as you scout out the route ahead, that's what we want to do every week. So it would be great if you subscribe to this podcast where every day you'll get the old Daily Bible Reading Snapshot delivered to wherever you get podcasts, and then once a week, you'll get this longer form podcast to survey what we're going to read. So let's jump into this week. Almost everything we believe and teach as Christians finds its foundation and its source in what we're about to read. I, I know we say that a lot about Scripture, but I really want you to think about the importance of what God reveals to us in Genesis 1 through 19. This is half of this book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. It was given to Moses. It was given to the people of Israel. We talk about how it identifies who these Israelites are, and it gives them a family history, just like we all, you know, we're all interested in who our forefathers were. The Israelites were too, but I want you to think of all that's contained in what we're about to read. We're going to talk about the creation, the fall into sin, God's curse for humanity because of sin, We're going to talk about God's judgment on the world through the flood, through the Tower of Babel. And we're also going to talk about God's covenants that he makes, like the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9. And then we're going to talk about the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. We're going to see characters like Melchizedek and try to answer questions about who he was. We're going to find out about characters like Lot and Sarah and Isaac. We're going to learn about cities like Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, There's a lot that we're going to cover that are going to teach us and really give us the foundations for what we believe as Christians. First big idea is that God's the creator, the one who designed the whole world. Before there was anything else, there was God. Before there was time and space, before there was anything created, there was a creator, which is why the first verse says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which is a term that's repeated a few times, which means... God made everything. And the most important thing that God made in chapter 1 was a man and a woman. And in Genesis 1.26, God speaks to himself and he says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And in this section, what we're going to find is we have God's clear declaration that men and women are made both in God's image, that there is a binary of male and female that God puts in the universe. It's not something that we discover about ourselves. It's something that God institutes. And then we find that God immediately, after he makes humanity in his image, he has roles for them. He has things that he wants them to do. And the first thing is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We're going to notice later on that humanity doesn't accomplish this in the way that they're told, and they almost try to 
obey some of God's commands in rebellion to God. We're going to see that through the Tower of Babel and how God has to put that down. But right here at the beginning, we find so much about ourselves, made in God's image. And there's a lot of theology that's packed into that idea. Um, Some people talk about how we're made in God's image, which means we are made like God in that we have intellect, emotion, and will. I believe that's true. But even more than that, we function like God functions. And when we don't live like God, we're not living like people made in his image, which is why in the New Testament, God's word's very clear that those of us who are in Christ are being renewed after the image of our creator. That comes from Colossians 3. But the concept is you can think about sanctification in terms of I am being made into God's image more and more. Now, don't believe that we've lost the image of God in the fall like some people think. I think that's pretty clear from our reading later in Genesis 9, which says murder is off limits because God made us in his image. I think we still have the image of God in us regardless if we're saved or not. But it is interesting to note that the New Testament talks about our sanctification in terms of being remade in the image of God. Another big concept that we find in the reading this week is how corrupting sin is. It starts with Satan, then it comes to the garden. He tempts Eve, and he does that pretty strategically by showing her things that he thinks that she will want. First, he lies about God and his intentions with his promises, which is a good thing to note that a lot of our temptations come from us disbelieving that God has our best interest at heart. We think that God is withholding something from us, and that's exactly what Satan said. And Eve falls for it. She sees something. She wants it. Um, We note that that's very similar. The lust of the eyes and the flesh and the pride of life, all that comes from 1 John chapter 2. I think John may have been referencing this section when he wrote that. But either way, when humanity falls into sin, we have some serious problems, which we call the curse. So just some theological terms for you. The fall is the historic sin of Adam and Eve. The curse is God's response to the fall. So it's all the effects of sin. So if I talk about the fall, we're talking about the action of Adam and Eve sinning. When we talk about the curse, we're talking about the effects of sin. So we see some of them here. God says that work is going to be difficult, that childbearing is going to be more difficult. But in the midst of this curse, what we also have is God's promise to redeem humanity from their own problem of sin. And in verse 15, God says that the seed of the woman will destroy Satan one day. That's a promise. The seed of the woman and the idea of a Messiah, the line of a Messiah. We're going to see that all throughout this reading. We're going to see it when Abraham shows up with this nation that God promises through Isaac. We're going to see the seed promise later on in Scripture. We'll talk about that later. But another thing that you're going to notice about the corrupting effects of sin is that once the first sin took place, once this first family were sinners, it did not take very long for the sons of these two first sinners to start sinning against each other. And in particular, Cain kills Abel, not because Abel did anything wrong, but because Cain was envious and jealous of Abel and his favor with God. And even God warns Cain. It's a very interesting scene. We'll read it soon where Cain was so tempted to sin against Abel that God intervenes and he says, hey, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And if you know the story, you know he does not rule over it. 
and this leads to a lot of different sins. We see later on the descendants of Cain lead to this guy named Lamech, who is kind of the embodiment of evil. He takes revenge. Yeah, he takes multiple wives. There's just all this corruption from God's original design that we see that just a good reminder, it doesn't take very long to move away from God's design. Once you get away from it, once you start pushing against God's design, it's a quick staircase down as we see in Romans chapter 1. Um, so later in our passage, we're going to read Genesis 6-6, which is an important statement about the sinfulness of humanity before the flood. If you ever wonder, why does God react so harshly to human sin? I think we see because it says that the Lord saw that the thoughts and intentions of everyone's heart was evil continually. Right? That's a massive statement about sin. It wasn't just that there were people doing wrong things sometimes, but the corruption of mankind was was deep, even to this point. And if you think about it, it might start to make sense why it got so bad so fast. Because if you have a whole group of people who are very healthy, that live a long time, the sin that takes place in each person's heart continues for a long time, and it can be compounding, right? I mean, if you think about today, if you've got evil people, they're limited by their health. They're limited by the fact that they're only going to live for so many years. Now imagine they live for a long time. How much evil could take place where you've got people living for a long time who are evil? We see some other weird things in chapter 6. One reason potentially that God ended the world, so to speak, is that there was this group called the Nephilim, which, you know, that's an interesting thing that you should probably research on your own. But God deals with these giants because he doesn't want sin to take over the world. And that's another big concept is that God brings judgment to stop the effects of sin in the world. And it's all precursors to his final judgment where one day he'll take care of all sin. But every time we see an act of God's judgment, we see he stops sin from taking place. It's a preserving agent for the descendants of the people who are even being judged to say, we're not going to sin like this anymore. Perhaps the best example of that is in chapter 11, when God stops these nations of people from congregating at Babel. You remember the creation mandate said, you're supposed to spread out. You're supposed to fill the earth, but they choose not to do that. And in their sinfulness, they say, we're going to rise up and we're going to be evil against God. It's actually pretty interesting. This concept of spreading out over the whole earth, we, we see in the book of Genesis, cities tend to be the places where evil is happening. Whenever people are congregated, that's where sin is taking place. And whether it be Babel, whether it be Sodom, uh, later on in the city of Babylon, which is referenced so many times in the Old and New Testament to signify the world system and, and sin and all that stuff. It's just interesting. Whenever these people rise up and throw off the creation mandate and say, we're not going to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, we're going to do what we want to do with God's created world. God brings judgment, which is a good warning for our culture that right now is trying to rid the world of God's natural order, whether it be of male and female, whether that be of marriage, whether that be how whatever the things that God designed that they're throwing off, just know God deals with that swiftly. And again, we see it again in chapter 19. Genesis is a book full of judgment, if you think about it. God is seeing sin and taking care of sin. He does it with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, where we see a complete destruction of the whole society because their sin was so grave 
and so perverse. We see in the book of Jude, verse 7, that it says that God overthrew these cities because of their sexual immorality and their propensity to go against God's design. Um, and just a warning for our cultures not to do that as well. Um, and another big thing, maybe a more positive thing that we see in these chapters, is God makes covenants and promises. Three in particular that are very important. First one, in Genesis 3.15, like we mentioned, God says, I am going to take care of the sin problem. I'm going to take care of the serpent. And I'm going to do that through a descendant of Eve. So that's the beginning of a line. You could trace it all throughout the Bible of God promising a Messiah to come. Then we see in chapter 9, after the flood takes place, God makes another covenant. Sometimes we call it the Noahic covenant because God tells Noah, I'm not going to flood the world like this again. And what you need to do is make sure that everyone, as they spread out and cover the earth for real this time, that we are valuing human life the way that it needs to be valued. It says there that if a person takes the life of another human being, they need to have their life taken because God made man in his own image. Then in chapter 12, we see the most important covenant where God makes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you this new land. Everyone who blesses you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And included in that promise is the seed promise from chapter 3, verse 15, which we'll trace later on. So as you can see, there's a lot of ground we cover in Genesis 1 to 19. And the same thing is true in Matthew 1 through 6. Now, not as much history takes place, but it's important for us to get some background information on the Gospel of Matthew. Just remember that the Gospels are four different accounts written about the same person. So they come at it from a different angle. All four accounts are inspired by God, which means that they're all equally authoritative, but there's different things that we can learn from the different Gospels. Primarily, Matthew is a good book from a Jew to Jewish people about their Jewish Messiah. So that means he's going to quote the Old Testament a lot, and he's not going to explain all the Jewish things that, you know, sometimes we need some explaining for. We see in Luke and in John, sometimes we get more explanation about that. But in Matthew, it's just delivered straight to these Jewish people, assuming that they know why it's important. So for us, this gospel, I think, takes a little bit more deep study because we want to understand the significance of things that the original audience would have just understood that we don't typically think of. Like it starts out with a genealogy, which sometimes we look at that and say, okay, it's a bunch of names. Why is that so important? But to the original audience, it's supremely important. If you want to tell me that this guy is the Messiah, I better know that he must come from the seed promise. I need to know that he comes from Abraham and from David and from all these different characters of the Old Testament, which is exactly what Matthew does here at the beginning. Another key theme that you're going to see in our reading is the idea that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy because he's going to come on the scene and be the answer to the Old Testament passages that Matthew's going to quote. Matthew's going to quote Isaiah 7.14. Matthew's going to quote Micah 5.2, Hosea 11.1. Jeremiah 31, 15, Isaiah 4, 3. He's going to quote all those things just in the first three chapters. So you're going to see the word fulfill six times. I want you to be on the lookout for those because most of the time Matthew uses it to describe how Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy, which again, he doesn't do that always in the same way. Old Testament prophecy is not just promise fulfillment, promise fulfillment. There are some statements made in the Old Testament that Jesus comes and fulfills, but it's like He's doing it like someone else did it in the past. It's not as simple as the promise of Micah 5.2 that says, 
out of Bethlehem is going to come my ruler. Now, that's more simple. We can look at that and say, well, the ruler is going to come from Bethlehem then. And Jesus does that. But other prophecy that he fulfills, like in Hosea 11.1, which says, out of Egypt, I called my son. Matthew's showing that Jesus did what Israel did. He just did it better. So there's, we can use that word fulfillment in multiple different ways. And I think Matthew shows it in a few different ways. Another key theme that you're going to see, speaking of fulfillment, is that what Jesus will do is he'll do what Israel did, but just better. Uh, For example, some people look at this section and say, you know, Jesus is bringing his people through a new exodus, a spiritual exodus. I think there's something to that. Uh, Think about what Jesus does. He, in chapter 3, goes through the water into the desert in chapter 4, through temptation, and then on a mountain to speak God's eternal word. Does that sound like something maybe we know about in the Old Testament? That sounds like what happened to Israel. So there is some kind of comparison that Matthew is trying to make here with these verses. So uh, then we start the very important section in chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, which is the first of five discourse units or sermons that Jesus will preach in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to see, if you have a red-letter Bible, you're going to notice there's five sections in Matthew where Jesus talks for a long time. This is the first one. So what's the Sermon on the Mount about? Basically, it's about the kind of greater righteousness that Jesus expects his disciples to have while they live on earth, which will be perfectly reflected when they live in the kingdom of God one day. This is all against the backdrop of the Pharisees who don't have greater righteousness. In Matthew 5, 20, Jesus says you need to have righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees if you ever want to go to heaven. And some of us immediately read that and think, well, I could never have righteousness greater than the scribes and Pharisees. They're the most righteous people. But you need to have an internal righteousness that comes from the heart. Jesus will talk about how the Pharisees thought they were keeping the law by not murdering and not committing adultery. But Jesus goes to the heart of the law to say, do you really think that you're innocent before God? If in your heart there's anger and there's lust and there's all these sins that take place in your life. Do you really think that you're righteous before God? No, you need a greater righteousness. Which again, as we read this sermon, you're going to see how Jesus is the perfect embodiment of all these things to his people. And we see in chapter 3, verse 15, that he fulfills all righteousness. I think there's something to that about Jesus doing what God requires in a perfect way where we can't. But we also see, as we read the Sermon on the Mount, he's not just talking about himself. He's talking to us. He's talking to disciples. He's saying, when you pray, when you give, when you fast, here's how to do it the right way. So we find ourselves at the middle of the Sermon on the Mount as we end this week. But I want you to read this thinking, how can I be the kind of person that Jesus wants me to be? It's more than just doing external things. He's saying, no, you need greater righteousness from the heart. So if you're a Christian and growing in sanctification, I want you to think, What kind of person is God making me into through this reading? So that's a lot. That's a longer daily Bible reading snapshot, but I hope that that's helpful. And as you read this week and as you listen to the daily Bible reading snapshot podcast or the videos on YouTube, I hope that you're digging into God's word. Really, the main idea is that you would read the Bible on your own. This is just a help. This is just a roadmap to help you know where you're at and to get the most out of your reading. So Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back next week for the Daily Bible Reading Snapshot Podcast. 